Last week, we kicked things off last week by showing you a video that you guys thought was very entertaining. And I wish I had one this week, but I don't have one this week. So I have a question to ask you to start things off. Um, we watched a video called Falling that, if you don't know what that is, just go Google today, Falling, and you'll find it. And uh, how many of you guys actually tried that this past week? I just want to see a show of hands. All right, so two, three of you. So uh, so that's probably why I'm not showing a video this Sunday, right there. Um, turn your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 23. Chapter 23 of Proverbs. And as always, though, we put up on the screen what verse, what chapter? Chapter 1, verse 7. So go ahead and go to that slide. And we will read this together as a group. So go to that first slide, and we will read it off the screen together as a group. You guys read this with me. Ready? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. And as I say every week, I want to let you know that we want this passage to frame the entire book of Proverbs because it's very easy to see Proverbs as just a book on behavior. It's very easy to see Proverbs as just a book on, okay, do this, don't do this, do this, don't do this. And what you forget is that everything that it's saying past this verse here has to be rooted in the fear of the Lord. Wisdom and intellect are not the same thing. Wisdom and smarts are not the exact same thing. Somebody can be very intellectual, very smart, but have no wisdom. True wisdom starts where? The fear of the Lord. If you think of it like this, the the fear of the Lord being the soil, and what grows from that is is true knowledge and true wisdom. This is where it begins. It begins with the fear of God. So today we're talking about uh, the issue of addiction. Addiction. You might think, what? This is Sunday morning, right? Well, we're not talking about just drugs and just alcohol, but addiction comes in all kinds of forms. There are many ways for us to be addicted to things. Now, the passage that we look at this morning might focus more on a couple of ones that you're more familiar with, like, like, like drinking and so on, but it applies to all forms of addiction. And so let's just think of some examples of other ways that we can become addicted to things. Let's look at the issue of, of laziness. If someone's lazy, what would you say they're addicted to? What would you say? What's that? Apathy or what else? Laziness, you're brilliant. All right, maybe leisure, they like their time, they just want to be left alone, they're addicted to leisure time, right? Uh, how about pride? If someone's addicted to, pr- or has a, has a pride addiction, what are they really addicted to? What would you say? Themselves, all right? So you're, you guys know that one very well, don't you? So we see pride in that way. We also see uh, there's the obvious ones. There's alcohol and there's drugs, physical addictions. Um, there's sexuality, there is, which goes beyond just uh, actual sex, but pornography. There are, do you know this? There are, there are probably, uh, when it comes to sex addiction and pornography addiction, the, the stats are going through the roof because of things like what you can find out. Just the access of what we have, what we can look at now is so different than before. It is going through the roof as far as, Addiction in those areas goes. How about relationships? You don't think of a relationship being an addiction, but 
in many cases, especially at your age, relationships can become like an addiction, especially an unhealthy relationship can become like an addiction. There are some people that just, they have to always be in one. No matter what, they just need to find the next relationship. That is like a druggie or a junkie looking for their next fix. Or someone who is in an unhealthy relationship, and they keep going back to it over and over and over again. Even though this person caused them great harm and great danger and great pain, they keep going back to the same person over and over because it helps them kill the pain. Relationships. Or how about this one? Food. You're like, okay, don't mess with my food. Don't, don't step on my toes about food, right? Don't talk about food. But here's the question for you. Do you, seriously, do you go to food for comfort? You're having a bad day. Do you have your little stash of this is my comfort food, right? And instead of, instead of going to the God who is comfort to us, you go to food. We call it comfort food for a reason, right? Comfort food, when I think of comfort, I always think of like anything that has gravy on it is comfort food, right? Cheese or gravy brings us comfort. Or how about this one? So food is one for some people. But how about this? This is a really serious one. That, that um, They're all serious, but this is a really serious one that I don't address much from the stage up here. But how about eating disorders? How about someone who their, their sin may not be or their addiction may not be food, but it may be the absence of food or it may be how they handle food in other areas of their life? What about someone who the perception is that people struggle in this area because it's all about body image. That might play into it somewhat, but from what I have, have read and seen and heard, it so often has more to do with just control. Your life feels out of control when you feel like you don't know what to do, and so you have this one area of life that you feel like you control when you do it with food or not eating or binging and purging and so on, and that's your one area of control, and it becomes an addiction. It becomes a, a horrible even life-threatening addiction. So addiction comes in all kinds of, of forms. I would define an addiction this way. An addiction is anything that has control over you. An addiction is anything that you feel like, it's got me. I have no power in this relationship. I, I have no authority, no power, no control over this thing or this person. And so today's passages might focus on drinking, but they apply to all addiction. There's two points I want to make before we jump into our, our discussion, and it's this. Uh, the first one is all addiction cycles are the same. Addiction cycles are the same. And what I mean by that is what normally happens with addiction is, is, is people experience the pain of life, and then what they do is they turn to a thing or a substance or a person in the midst of that pain to kill the pain, so to speak, and then that addiction then creates more pain for them, and they keep turning to that thing over and over, hoping to kill that pain that the addiction has caused, and it's like it just feeds on itself. It's this never-ending cycle. This is true of alcohol. It's true of drugs. It's true of relation. It's true of sexuality. It's true of, of all addictions that it has this cycle to it. And the second point I want to make about addiction is this. All addiction is really about idolatry. All addiction is really about idolatry. It's not just about the person or the thing or the substance. It's really about the heart, and it's really about idolatry in the heart. Romans 1 talks about this. Romans 1 says that they exchange the truth of God for a lie, and they worship created things instead of the creator. You see, as Christians, we believe that 
there's the creator God, and there's also creation, which is underneath God, and God's in authority over that creation. He made everything to be good, but sometimes people take even good things, and they put those created things in place of the one who created them, and they become our God, and it's idolatry. And so all addiction is really about idolatry. Now, this totally flies in the face of our culture. Our culture will say things like, this person's an alcoholic, so they have a disease. Have you heard this before? You've seen this on television or counseling programs. They'll they'll call addiction a disease. Now, I understand what they're saying. It requires treatment, professionals to intervene, just like it might for cancer. But addiction is not, we can't just call it a disease. Now, we might call it a disease of the heart idolatry, but we can't call it a disease in the same way that we call cancer a disease, right? In fact, one of my uh, old favorite comedians, Mitch Hedberg, said it this way. He said, people say alcoholism is a disease, but it's the only one you can get yelled at for having. I love that quote. It's so true. Sadly enough, he actually died of alcohol and drug poisoning. So what you see here, though, is that alcoholism, you can't look at that and say that's the same thing as cancer, right? Like, you've got a right to be a little upset that someone is an alcoholic and that they're feeding this addiction in that way. But if someone got cancer, you would not react like, what? You did what? Right? You just would not have that same reaction. It's, it's a totally different, different deal. So we can't just say it's a disease. We have to say it's, it's more than that. I would say it this way. I would say at the heart of addiction is this. It's really about a worship disorder. It's, not, it's, it's idolatry. It's really about a worship disorder that takes place in the heart. You've exchanged the, you've exchanged the creator God with the created thing, and you put that in place of God, and it's really all about disordered worship. And so what I want you guys to do is look at your first four questions at your tables, and one of them involves a little bit of a debate, so make it lively. Go ahead and discuss. Okay, do you guys need more time on the debate? A little bit more, okay. Okay, let's talk about this next passage for a few moments. I always like good debates. And I always try to make sure we have these debates where you guys feel free to say what you really think and not just give us the churchy response. So I hope that happened at your tables today. Uh, But look at chapter 23, verse 19. 23 verse 19. I want to make sure you know that my goal this morning is not just to have this talk be about drugs and alcohol. It's going to sound like that, but that is not my entire goal this morning. So um, it's going to sound like that on the, on the surface, though. Look at chapter 23 verse uh, 19 to 21. Here's what it says to us. Verse 19. It says, Hear, my son, and be wise, and direct your heart in the way. Be not among drunkards or among gluttonous eaters of meat. We never put those together, do we? Gluttony and the drunkard, right? For the drunkard and the glutton will come to poverty, and slumber will clothe them with rags. So what I want to do a little bit here is just is explain to you uh, my own upbringing, my own church background, and how I was raised when it comes to the issue of alcohol. Um, 
gluttony of meat was never an issue for us. We thought that was perfectly acceptable. But the, uh, but the drunkard part, we saw that as, as, as that was sin, that was wrong. And so, um, well, rightfully saw drunkardness is wrong. But I'm, I'm talking more about uh, just drinking alcohol, period. I was raised uh, on the East Coast in a very conservative Southern Baptist church, and, um, and my parents were raised this way as well. And so they took us to this church, and it was a Bible-teaching church, but at the same time, they also had this, this real stigma of, hey, you don't, you don't drink. Like, if you drink, you are sinning. And what they would do is they would take certain verses. I'm seeing this now as an adult. They would take certain verses and passages and, and kind of twist them a bit to, to make it seem like that drinking across the board was just downright black and white sin. No question about it. And so what it would create, though, is they actually made you agree before you became a member of that church, that you will not drink anything of any kind. It's alcoholic. Not even in your home, not even socially. None of that at all should happen if you're going to be a member of this church. And so what it would create is a bunch of liars, right? It'd create a bunch of people who just say, yeah, yeah, I'll agree to that. I like the church. I'll agree to that. But then as they go home or they're out, they'll, they'll, be like, they'll, hide, they'll hide things. It would just create hypocrisy. And so as I grew older, I started to, um, I still had this, this, this belief that the Bible literally said that all drinking is sinful, and, and I would take verses and kind of twist them and make them say what I want them to say. I'd get in arguments with friends over these, these topics and, and make these verses say what, that, what I want them to say. And so, but as I kind of grew in my faith and started hearing people that actually didn't have that viewpoint, I started to realize that, okay, the Bible does not say that drinking in and of itself, is wrong and sinful. But it does say being drunk is wrong and sinful. I'll be really clear this morning. It even feels weird to me to stand before a group of teenagers and say, hey, drinking is not necessarily a sin, and be like, oh, no, what are they going to do with that? <laughs> right? I get scared. But here's what I realize. That's the same fear that caused my church to twist Scripture and to make it say what it doesn't really say. And in my opinion, I would much rather be honest about Scripture and let you see it and let you see what it really says and be honest with you about that as opposed to twisting it and make it say what I don't think it really says. Because what has the greater chance of causing a young Christian like yourself to stumble? Is it hearing that, okay, it's not sin as long as you're over age and under the laws of the land and so on, as long as you're doing it in a responsible way and you're not getting drunk, it's not wrong and sinful. Is that going to make you stumble, or is me twisting Scripture and lying to you have a greater chance of making you stumble? And so I want to be completely honest with you about what Scripture says about this topic. So I'll be clear. Drinking is not sinful in and of itself, but being drunk is. And then under the laws of Ireland, which God does say you have to obey and follow, because the government is ordained by God to make laws that you have to obey and follow no matter what you think about it. That once you are 21, so if you're drinking underage, that is a sin, okay? Black and white sin. Underage, 21, against the law of the land here in, in the U.S., that is sinful to disobey the laws that are set before you. But once you get to that age where it is acceptable in our culture to, to drink at 21, it is not sinful to do that, but I will say this. You have to use immense discretion and wisdom, okay? Immense discretion and wisdom. And what I mean by that is that that means that you don't drink to get drunk. 
You don't have a drink to kill the pain of life. You don't drink and go party with people that are doing ungodly and, and horribly wicked things. You don't use alcohol in that way. You're also a person that, that doesn't want to cause a weaker person to stumble. So if someone struggles with alcoholism, that you don't go and say, hey, man, want to come over and have a beer? You don't do that because that's causing someone weaker to stumble. You use great discretion and wisdom in how you do that. And you might even make, you might even come to a point where you say, you know what, for me, I think it is sin because it's going to cause me to go down that road. So it might be sin for you because it violates your conscience. It might be that for you. I want you to know this morning that um, 70% of alcoholics started in their teens. So there's a reason why 21 is kind of the age they've landed upon. I'm not saying it's a perfect age, but the, the chances are much greater. If someone starts abusing alcohol and drugs early on in life, they're going to continue that trajectory of life for the rest of their life, right? Because here's what happens. Responsible adults who are doing it in a godly way, they don't drink in the same way that, that underage people do it. Like, your, your friends are not saying, like, hey, do you want to come over to our house? We're going to have some steaks, and we're going to drink a glass of wine and listen to the symphony, right? They don't do that at your age. They usually involves a keg and a funnel, right? That's how they do it. It involves, like, that's the point of drinking is to, to get drunk, to be able to tell the crazy story that, hey, remember that time we were just all crazy drunk, right? That's the point of those kinds of situations. And so if you look at verse 19... I think it's a very revealing verse. It says, it says, direct your heart, direct your heart in the way. I think it's important that he says your heart because this is ultimately about idolatry in the heart. It goes back to the heart. He's saying, direct your heart in this way because from that will flow your actions. And in verse 20, he says, he, he includes drunkard and gluttonous eaters of meat in the same sentence, which I know you kind of glossed over the second part of that, like, like I know when I first read it, but food and alcohol addiction are equally dangerous. We rarely put gluttony, though, in the same category as, as the drunkard. So the Bible's not against eating meat, just so you know. It's against gluttonous eating of meat, just so you're aware of that distinction. But notice that it says not to be around these types. Now, your debate question was, Okay, how does that influence how or if you go to a party where there is drinking, in your case, underage drinking? And what I will say to you is this. There is an issue of, I'm not going to say to you this morning that I have a proof text that says, you know, you should or should not do certain things. I am saying to you, though, that you've got to use great wisdom. I would say that it would be unwise, horribly unwise, to insert yourself into a situation where there's, first of all, underage drinking, because you will get caught with them. You'll be tempted alongside with them. But secondly, you're going to start to see certain aspects of sin, and it's going to lure you in. It's going to lure you in. So let's take the underage thing out of it. Let's put you in college. You're over 21 now. And, uh, and the question would be, is it okay to go to these places where people are engaged in this kind of activity? Is it okay to do that? And what I would say to you is this. You've got to be very extremely wise in how you make these kinds of decisions. You might throw out the, the suggestion that, well, hey, you know, Jesus went to parties. Jesus partied all the time. Look at Scripture. He's always hanging out with sinners, and, and you're right, he is. But he's Jesus. 
right? You're not Jesus. Like, he's not, he's not partying along with them, getting drunk, getting girls' numbers. He's not doing that. He's Jesus, right? And so don't sit there and say, well, well I'm above temptation. I can hold back. I can withstand that temptation. That's not you. That was Jesus. So if you're a person that struggles greatly with that, then you might not go to a place where that kind of stuff's happening, right? Secondly, is your motivation to go to those situations, are you being Jesus to them? Are you really going there and being Jesus to these situations and these people that you're hanging out with? Is that your purpose? Is that really your motivation? Like, you might use that verse as an excuse. Well, Jesus went to parties, but is that really why you're going to that, that event or that party? Because the same reason Jesus went to those types of places? Is that really your motivation? We say all the time here that you should live on mission, that you should be on a mission, and that you should be caring about people that don't know Christ and, and loving them and caring for them in the same way that Christ did. But here's what I'll say to you is that you should have unsaved friends. You should have many unsaved friends, but that does not mean that you always or that you engage with them in their sin. There does, there's a distinction there. And you might say, but if I don't push the edge, if I don't, if I don't step over just a little, that they're not going to be my friend. Well, that's, I understand that, but that's part of the, the deal. Who do you want to offend? Do you want to offend God or do you want to offend your, your friend? Who do you fear more? Do you fear your friend or do you fear God more? So look down with me at chapter, at chapter 23, verse 29. Skip down to uh, verse 29. It says this. He's describing the picture of the drunkard. He says, he says, who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has strife? Who has complaining? Who has wounds without cause? Is there someone who has been so drunk that they just, they're like, hey, how did I get that cut? How did I, how did I get that bruise? Where did that come from? Those who tarry long over wine, those who go to try mixed wine, do not look at wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup and goes down smoothly. In the end, it bites like a serpent and stings like an adder. Your eyes will see strange things, and your heart will utter perverse things. It's amazing how Scripture is timeless. Your heart will utter perverse things. Your eyes will see strange things. People say all the time that when they're on drugs or whether they're high on anything, that they'll look in the mirror and say, I look so different. I look distorted. I thought I saw this, but it really wasn't that. It was something else. Or I thought I, I hallucinated. Or someone will utter perverse things, or they'll, they'll chew someone out. They'll, they'll beat someone. They will be in a drunken rage and abuse someone. Doing things they don't even remember. Look at verse 34. It says, you'll be like one who lies down in the midst of the sea, like one who lies on the top of a mast. They struck me, you will say, but I was not hurt. They beat me, but I did not feel it. When shall I awake? I must have another drink. You know, the first drunk I ever saw, I mean, I had some people in my family that were alcoholics, but I never saw them, like, just totally wasted and gone. They were a little bit iffy, but they weren't necessarily a slobbering drunk when I would see them. But I worked at a, at a golf club in high school, and they had a clubhouse, and they had a bar, and... uh that's the first drunk I ever saw that I would say is a truly slobbering drunk. This guy went out and played golf with his friends. 
comes into the bar at about 5 p.m., starts eating dinner. The guy just would, would kept drinking and drinking and drinking. I would, I would walk back in to get some water, and he was just still drinking and drinking and drinking. It got to a point where I came in about 10 o'clock that night. He was still there. His friends were there holding him up on the bar stool, and he was putting another drink to his mouth. And there was, as he pulled it away, there was like this string of drool just pulled off to the glass as he put the glass back down on the bar. I mean, this guy was so drunk, his friends had to carry him out of the bar to go home. Literally just walk him out and carry him to his car. And they drove home, I am sure, because he would not have made it past the parking lot. But when I saw that, I thought, okay, this, this verse is describing that scene. The person who says, I, I just got to have another, something else. I've got to kill the pain. I've got to have one more drink to kill the pain. Commercials never paint this picture, do they? They never paint the picture that we see here. You always see the beginning of the party, but it never shows you the end. It never shows you the end of that situation, does it? Does anyone here ever watch the show on A&E called Intervention? Anyone watch that show? It's not a good times kind of show, so I, I doubt like any of you guys ever watched that show. But um, my wife and I will watch the show from time to time, and it's just amazing. Every, no matter what the addiction is, the patterns are always the same. But if you watch that show, it describes, it, it's a picture of this verse. It's a picture of what you see happening in this passage. Have any of you, um, raise your hand quickly, just briefly. How many of you have had a family member or a friend addicted to drugs and alcohol? Raise your hand quickly. You've seen it firsthand. You've seen it firsthand. Almost everybody in the room, me included, have, have seen that first, firsthand. And so what we see in this passage is that addiction doesn't just numb you physically like it's being described here, but it also numbs you spiritually. It says at the beginning of this pa- at the end of the passage, he says, when shall I awake? I must have another drink. On this person's mind is nothing but I've got to find the next thing. I've got to find the next drug, the next drink. And so not only are they, are they numbed physically, but they're also numbed spiritually so that they're in this cycle of addiction and abuse that they can't get out of. And even though they're experiencing physical sickness, they're still asking for the very thing that caused the physical sickness. That's how much of a downward cycle they are in. Flip over to chapter 25, verse 28. 25, verse 28. It says, A man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. And this morning, I don't want you to think of of the the solution to to addiction is just, okay, self-control. I want you to get this. Someone can't truly be self-controlled unless they are Christ-controlled. Somebody can't truly be controlled, self-controlled unless they are Holy Spirit-controlled. In Galatians, it talks about that self-control is a fruit of the Spirit. And so until you come to a place where you submit to Jesus and you become Holy Spirit-controlled, you can't be truly self-controlled. Self-control is not just a, okay, Clench your fists, grit your teeth, just try really hard, sweat really hard, and it'll work out for you. That is not what we're referring to when we say self-control. An addict has no control, or they're controlled by something or someone else. And what this uh, verse is trying to depict is that 
it says that a city, it's like a, a person without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. What that picture is describing is back in ancient days, cities had to have walls. If cities did not have walls, they could not function properly. Recall the story of Nehemiah. He wept when he heard that Jerusalem had no walls because that meant Jerusalem was destroyed. And so if a city didn't have walls, enemies could easily come in and they could, stay, they could, they could uh, take and steal, pillage the whole town. And so it could not function if it didn't have this protective element to it. One breach, not the whole wall, but one breach in the wall and the whole army can flood in. That's all it takes, one breach in the wall. And we see this is true in people's lives, that addiction so often can start with just one little thing, and then a flood of addiction just comes in. So many people that have addictions, they will try to fix that addiction by having another addiction. They'll try to fix that one by having another addiction. And the army just floods in on them, and they're caught in this downward, downward cycle. I think this is some of you guys this morning that you've, You've given in to one thing, and that's led to something else, and that's led to something else. And you're just in the cycle of replacing addiction with other addictions. Does your life have protective walls around it? Does your life have a protective wall around it to keep the enemy, to keep those things from from getting in? I want to define self-control for you this way. Look at the screen. Self-control is the ability to choose the important thing over the urgent thing. Self-control is the ability to choose the important thing over the urgent thing. Some people just have this, they're just driven in life towards the the here and the now, the quick fix, the most urgent way to, to solve an issue or problem. And the question is, can you wait for the important thing that God has for you, or are you all about the here and the now? the urgent, the quick fix. Flip with me over to Titus chapter 2, all the way to the New Testament. It's a long journey, I know, but just look at your table of contents if you can't find it. Titus chapter 2. We're going to finish out with this passage. Titus chapter 2. And here's what this passage says. Look at chapter 2, verse 11 to 14. And I want you to see here that, that, that self-control is not about you just gritting your teeth and just trying really hard, trying to fix it yourself. That's not self-control. You'll see in this passage it's totally different than that. So chapter 2, verse 11, it says this. It says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Now catch this training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. So what's training us? It's the grace of God. Grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. I love long sentences like that, don't you? Especially when they're about grace. Here's what I want you to see about this passage, though. 
is that God's grace doesn't just save us. God's grace doesn't just save us. God's grace teaches us. God's grace trains us. God's grace grows us. God's grace sanctifies us. God's grace doesn't just justify us. He sanctifies us through his grace. He grows us through his grace. Grace is God's unmerited favor for us, something we do not deserve. And so what it teaches us is it teaches us to live self-controlled lives. It says in this passage very plainly that that is what grace teaches us. It teaches us to live self-controlled lives that honor and glorify God. You know, most of us are used to the idea of someone using fear to teach us self-control. We're used to the idea of a parent, you know, saying to a kid, okay, if you do this, then I'm going to punish you by doing this. And the kid, of course, lives in fear for a few moments, right? That never lasts, does it? But when we look at grace, what it's saying is that grace stirs up someone's heart to the point where they love Jesus, love Christ, want to submit their life to him, put their life in his hands. They want to surrender to him. And as a result of that, they live self-controlled because they are now Christ-controlled. They are Holy Spirit-controlled. They are God-controlled, giving them the power to live a self-controlled life. So do you hear this? God's grace doesn't just save us, but it teaches us to renounce sin. It teaches us to renounce addiction. Grace is not license to sin. Grace is not freedom to sin. Grace sets us free from sin. And so our culture teaches us to just try hard, use hard work to try to get yourself under control. But this passage says very plainly that grace actually teaches us and trains us to grow in this area of life. And so what I want to just finish up with this morning is, in verse 14, he says, it says, who gave himself for us to redeem us, to redeem us. So if you're sitting here this morning and you are struggling with any kind of addiction that I'm describing this morning, any kind of being under control of something besides God, any kind of idolatry, worshiping something that's not God, something or a someone that God has created, if that is you, know this morning, if you've surrendered to Christ, submitted to him, he has redeemed you. You no longer have to be under the authority and power of that thing or that person. He has redeemed you. He has redeemed you. To redeem means to deliver. It means deliverance. He has delivered you from the power and authority of that thing or that person. Every addiction that you and I come in contact with, every, everything we, we get caught up in, that is an attempt for us to kill pain, us to kill some kind of pain. And I want you to hear this morning that Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, he took the pain. He took pain on the cross so you and I could be redeemed. That's what he did for us. That's what he did for you and what he did for me. So will you live in that? Go ahead and discuss your last few questions at your tables. Go ahead and discuss.